Um, if you're here visiting with us, we have been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we are in chapter 19, and uh, Thea is going to come, and she's going to read for us, but let's all stand together um, as we read through this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the kin king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and brought, and sorry, for he took his life in his hand, in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. He saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in the house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when, and when Saul sent messengers to David, she said, He is sick. Then the, Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at, at, his head, at its head. So, so Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go, so that he escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to David, and when they saw the company messengers to take David and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied when it was told Saul he sent other messengers and they also prophesied and Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku and he asked where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And when he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, 
And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom this morning as we, as we study this passage together, Lord. This is um, not an easy text for us to grasp in its context and what's going on, but Lord, help us by virtue of your Holy Spirit to make sense of it, um, both in its breadth as well as its depth, and Lord, as, as to what it means for us. Lord, would you help us to see your beauty and your glory? Would you help us to see uh, the wonders of Christ, Lord, that are revealed in this passage that point us to your Son? And would you allow me as your messenger simply to reflect your truth in a way, Lord, that would impact your, your children, as well as, Lord, those that may be listening that don't know you, so that they will be drawn to worship you as the great God and Savior that you are, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's been just a, a few weeks since we were in 1 Samuel, and I uh, want to remind you that as we're looking at 1 Samuel, our text today, if we just took it by itself without any other context, probably be very confusing to us. And so it is important for us to make sure that we step back and we, we place it back in its context uh, with an awareness of what is going on. If you remember, God um, is in the process of raising up his king. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, before that, we read in the last verse of Judges that every man did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in Israel. God raised up Samuel to be a leader in Israel to be the means by which he would identify his chosen king. But the people intervened and they said, we want a king like the other nations. We want one that will go out into battle. We want one that's going to represent us in that sense. And so God allowed the people to have a king, although he chose him, he brought him, but it was a king of the of the people's choosing, so to speak. They were the ones that wanted this kind of king. And that, of course, was Saul. But God had other plans. He ultimately had the plan of David being that king. And as we come into this passage, David has already been revealed as uh, this, this, uh, this wonderful champion. He took on Goliath when Saul would not. Um, he is a hero of the people. He has been consistently fighting for Saul and for Israel. And Saul does not like that in chapter 18. If you remember, all the women came out singing praises and stuff like that. And saying in the song, you know, Saul has, has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And there's this, there's this harshness now that is stirred up in Saul against David. And that basically in chapter 19 continues on. This is a continuing story. In fact, when we get to chapter 20, it will continue on where, where Saul is against David. And so we want to make sure that we see that in its context. But today, uh, our focus is going to be on, on a word or an idea, and it's the word of deliverance. Okay, It's a word of God's protection, his care, and his deliverance of those who are his. 
Now, a number of years ago when I was in, in university, uh, on, on the weekends, I, I was preparing for ministry, I was studying to be a pastor, and on the weekend, I would travel from Greenville, South Carolina, to um, just north of Charlotte, North Carolina. Sunday morning, I'd get in my car, and I'd drive up there. It took about two hours or so. I'd do it every week. I would work in this little church, Concord Bible Church was the name of the church. The pastor there was one of the professors at the school I was attending. Um, great guy, um, and really enjoyed my time there. But it was, I, I would always go on I-85. Anyone driven I-85 all the way across there? You get just past, um, past Charlotte, and that's where I would get. And, and I would just, like I said, I would, I would make this journey all the time. And one Sunday morning, I'm driving along like normal in the left-hand lane on the freeway, and uh, this semi-truck pull, I come up to the semi-truck, and, and, and I'm just kind of going along with it, and all of a sudden, the semi-truck just pulls over into the lane that I'm in. Doesn't give me a chance to do anything. And so, you know, I just responded and I just kind of popped my car like this, thinking I can get out of the way of the truck. And I found myself in the middle of the ditch that separates both of the freeways going different ways. Literally straddling the ditch, going um, the speed limit, the truck to my right, oncoming traffic to my left, and there I am going through this ditch. And now I'm thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do? And up ahead, I see a drain and the beginning of a cement divider. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, I've got to act fast. But I'm still going the speed limit. The truck is still to my right. But I'm just like, okay. And this is all happening split second, right? I just popped my wheel, and I bounced up out of the ditch and was now in the median. I had the um, concrete divider to my left, the semi-truck to the right, and I was still going the speed limit. And I put my foot on the brake and just eased off and pulled in behind the truck, continued on. Now I was a little shaken, but thankful that I was alive. And this car kind of pulled up next to me, and it was a lady, and she's driving, and she's just like shaking her head like, I can't believe what I just saw. And you know, and then I, I finally got to my destination and walked into the church, and people were like, hey, Rod, how you doing? It's good to see you. How, you know, what's, what's been going on? It's like, I nearly died. <laughs> and you know, I look back at that experience, and you know, we call that you know, a near-death experience, right? There, we, we, maybe you have, that happens to you every day. I don't know. Maybe you commute in, in the Bay Area, and that's what happens. But, um, but I mean, I look back at that situation, and I, I, I just think through what happened there, I, don't, I could not repeat that. I, I could not, with my own skill set, repeat popping down into a ditch. Don't go and try this at home, okay? <laughs> all right? And then somehow popping back with a semi to the, you know, all that scenario, and I look back at that and say, you know, God was at work protecting me. Now, I, I knew that in theory, I knew that as far as my theology is concerned. I, honestly, I go back to that time and I say, God preserve me for a reason. Because that, that could have been the end of me. And yet it wasn't. And so it, it gave me some perspective that God still has something for me to do. And for me, that was very, very helpful. I needed that reminder. And friends, I know that we could all probably share some stories, similar stories, uh, that would be uh, you know, similar in nature, where times when you were in great danger and yet somehow you managed to hold on to your life. Um, maybe a, a time when you were going through some incredible suffering or, or you went through some injury and um, you've lived to tell the tale, so to speak, um, but still wondering how God preserved you. 
Um, we live in, in a dangerous world, don't we? There are dangers all around, and, and we must not ignore those realities. Life can be hard, life can be dangerous, and yet at the same time, we are reminded of things like uh, Ephesians chapter one, uh, where we're told that God chose us in him before the foundations of the earth. So God had already been thinking about us before he created the earth, and while we're on this earth, he hasn't abandoned us. And Philippians 1.6, it reminds us that, that um, what he has begun in us, he will be faithful to complete. And it reminds us that although this world is full of danger, that God is not going to uh, allow us to go through unnecessary danger unless that's part of his plan. And when it's our time to go, it's our time to go. He's not guaranteeing that we're not gonna face danger, right? And some of you have been in some accidents. Some of you have been through some difficult times. Some of you have been through some near-death uh, experiences. Maybe, maybe you've had a disease of some sort. Maybe you've been in a car accident or whatever it might be. But God has his timing. And as we come to our passage here today, um, it's important for us to recognize that, that God in his providence um, chooses to deliver his children if that is his will. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, we, we continue now the story of David, that would be God's chosen king, ascending to the throne of Israel. And Saul, the people's rejected king, degenerating into further madness. Yet in the background, through every danger that David is going to experience, God's is continuing to work his plan of redemption. So he's, he's in the background, working his will, working his providence, accomplishing what he has set out to do. And so it's a reminder of what we find in Psalm Two, in particular verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And David now is his anointed. Saul is purposely against David. Now friends, how foolish it is to go up against the Lord and his anointed. Yet, people will still act and think that there is some chance that the one who rules the heavens will be forced back down because of their scheming. How foolish that is. They'll beat their chest in front of God. They'll speak, boastly, or speak boldly about the power that they may have. They will pursue all manner of evil against God's children. But God in his timing and long-suffering will eventually flick them into the flames of judgment for their wickedness and their insubordinate pride. Now just, just see that picture. Those who shake their fists at God, God will in his judgment cast them into the lake of fire. He will judge them. There's, there's nothing that they're doing that God cannot take care of. We must have that confidence here. Still, from our perspective, what God has well in hand can still look and feel pretty rough and intimidating. It can seem that the enemy is the one with the power and that somehow the God who is opposed to, to, the, to be seated 
securely on, on the throne. He, he is seated securely on the throne. It, it just seems like he's abandoned us. It seems like he's, he's left. And friends, as, the more you look at the news recently, the more this anti-Christian mentality is creeping up, right? I mean, it's no longer we're a political movement now trying to gain land. This is, we are a group that is set out to eradicate the land of Christians. Now, the only, the only saving grace for us in that context is it's happening over there. But friends, things can change fast. And there are attitudes among our people in the thinking of our people, even, even in the context of universities, that, that is anti-Christian, that is going to have its way in our context, and we just need to be ready for it. And that's how we began our time today, right? If you were here at the beginning of the service, Ed read a passage where Jesus says, listen, you know, if, if they're persecuting you, it's because they're persecuting me, so don't think that you're not gonna be persecuted. We identify ourselves with Christ. And yet, in the midst of all that, we need the confidence that God is there to protect us and to deliver us if that is his will. And so, what we must do is we must lean into God at, at a time like this. We must look to his sovereign providences and promises and trust that he is at work fleshing out his redemption through the struggles, trials, and suffering of his children. So now as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 19 and seek to discover what God wants to teach us, we can confidently say the following. Here's the theme of our time this morning. In 1 Samuel 19, we are given four scenes, four scenes that reveal to us how God delivers his children from danger. So four scenes are gonna be on display for us to reveal how God delivers his children from danger. I say with the qualifier that God doesn't always deliver his children from danger. Because the qualifier is if it is his will. And if it is his will not to deliver us, then we can be confident that he, as the sovereign God, is working his plan according to his purposes. All right? So as we walk through this text, we'll consider first the setting, then the scenes, and then ultimately we're gonna kind of wrap our hands around the significance of what we've looked at in this passage. So let's now begin by looking at the setting of this text. And look at chapter 19, verse one. This is what we're gonna focus in on. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. Now if you remember the last time we were together, uh, we were looking at chapter 18, and in chapter 18, we identified that what Saul was doing was he was fleshing out what he was thinking in his head, in his heart. Saul's desire was to get rid of David. Saul's desire in chapter 18 was a secret mission. It was happening in his heart, and so he was commanding things to be done. He was putting Saul out, or not Saul, he was putting David out on the front lines against the Philistines, hoping that the Philistines would kill him, that, 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 that David would not have the strength, he would not have the power to protect himself. He tried to kill him, of course, with a spear. He tried to manipulate David's emotions by offering his daughters eventually 
Michael is married now to David, but somehow Saul is thinking that if I marry my daughter to David, that he'll be distracted, he won't give the kind of focus he needs to, he'll ease up in his skill and wisdom, and somehow I'll get him. But it was not to be, and what we saw was that time and time and time again, David was successful in battle and was not affected by Saul's schemes that were all taking place in his heart. No one else knew about it. Now we come to chapter 19, and we begin in verse 1, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants. And what is he saying? Kill David. Now, friends, this is really important. Saul hates David so much that now what he has been stewing on in his heart comes out in instructions to his son and his servants. In other words, don't think of house servants. Think of his soldiers. Think of his leaders. He's saying, you have a job to do, and it's to kill David. Friends, this reminds us of what Scripture says. What's in the heart will eventually spill out, right? Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So what goes on in the heart eventually is going to pour out, and that's what we find happening here. Saul's inner thoughts, his inner desires now become public, and so we move from a secret mission to a public mission. And this public mission, of course, involves so many more people. Now it's, good, it's a good reminder that we are actually all very much like Saul. If we're thinking sinful thoughts about other people and we have difficulty keeping those thoughts to ourselves, um, especially when we see their continued health and prosperity, people that have maybe offended us, people that have hurt us, so sadly what happens is people stuff those thoughts, they may not reveal them, so they, they push them down in their, in their heart, um, and they end up living lives of bitterness. And when you stuff those emotions, when you just kind of force them down, it's, it's an anger that is deep-seated in your inner being, and that's what ultimately is bitterness. Bitterness is like that cup of coffee that you just kind of left on the shelf and you haven't given attention to and you come back a month later and you look at it and it's like, ah, maybe I shouldn't have used cream after all, you know? It's just all nasty and that's, that's what happens with bitterness. Sometimes you, you're convinced, you know what? I dealt with it, but you haven't. You've stuffed it and it's just festering away and that's what happens, friends, um, when we hold those things in. But bitterness, um, bitterness ends up oozing out uh, kind of like a gangrene in all different areas of our lives. We may think that it's stuff, but it just finds its way out in how we talk to people and how we behave with people. And you may know some people that are just very, very bitter, and it's not a compartmentalized thing. Now, what is it that God calls us to do when we're offended by other people? What are we called to do when we are troubled by the success of others who are sinful in their behavior and seem to be getting away with it? What are we to do when those who have hurt us and continue to do so don't seem to be getting the punishment that they deserve? 
Well, God calls us to bring our burdens to him. Our struggles with others should bring us to our knees before God. See, it's before God that we pour out our heart. We pour out our concerns. We pour out these frustrations and these, these, these burdens and these struggles. We pour our thoughts out to him. And listen, if there's anyone in this universe that understands, it's gonna be God. If there's anyone that's gonna be able to hear our thoughts, as awful as we might think that they may be, he is the one that hears, and he is the one that sometimes will rebuke us through his word, but he will also counsel us as to what we need to do so that those thoughts don't flesh out into sinful behavior. See, this is, this is part of prayer. Part of coming before God is just to cry out to him with those things that we're struggling with. And friends, that is what Saul should have done He should have humbled himself before God in repentance when he saw David's success. He should have allowed David's success to fuel him to go bow himself before God and cry out for mercy. But Saul has too much selfish pride. Hey, the people chose me to be king, and anyone who comes in my way, I will take out. So so how do we deal, and how do we stop a crazed man like that? This is the setting, this is what's going on, okay? This is the big picture of, of, of what kind of now brings us into these four scenes. So now, scene number one. We'll look at these four scenes recorded in chapter 19. And they're gonna reveal for us Saul's pursuit to kill David. And we're gonna observe how David is rescued. And each encounter is different. And each encounter will involve different people. But behind it all is the same God who is at work exercising his sovereign plan of redemption. First scene, scene number one. Danger in the field. Danger in the field. Verses one through seven. Look at verse one. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And so here's here's Jonathan as he hears his father, uh, his heart being poured out in this, this venomous, evil way. He's already devising a plan for David, whom he loves, whom he delights in. And remember, not only did Jonathan love David, but we're told that Saul loved David, and we're told that Judah and Israel loved David, and we're told that Michael loved David. And so if that expression concerns you, a lot of the you know, public community that, that wants to pursue kind of a homosexual agenda will focus in on that. You can listen to the last message on 1 Samuel to hear more about that. But this is another expression of this, this kindred spirit between Jonathan and David. And we're told here once again that, that Jonathan delighted much in David. And, and, and after David killed Goliath, there's this, this knitting together that took place. Jonathan saw that, that David was willing to trust the Lord in battle. He was willing to face danger for the cause of Yahweh. He was a man of conviction 
and character. He was skillful in battle. And of course, you also may remember that, that Jonathan made a covenant with David. It's a wonderful picture of, of friendship that was real, revealed to us there. So it should come as no surprise then that the son of Saul is working for the defense of David. But Jonathan's methods in dealing with his father take place in the realm of speech. Just think about what he does here. Sound speech that appeals to honor, respect, and reason. Continue on, verse four. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life and his, uh, in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? We just kind of restate it. Father, Dad, what do you think you're doing? It's kind of like there in the background, right? This kind of tone. It doesn't make any sense. It's madness. You are in great danger if you continue down this path, Dad. Listen to what I have to say. Listen, Father. He has brought good to you. He was willing to put his life on the line for you. He was the means of Israel's deliverance. It was the Lord who worked Israel's great salvation through David. His victory made you happy. Just emphasize what Jonathan is saying. It was the Lord that was working through David. So if you deal with David, who are you ultimately offending? The Lord, okay? So you were victorious, and your loud mouth nemesis bit the dust and his head was delivered to you by this young man. He's innocent. Why do you want to kill him without cause? And notice what it says. Verse six, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul can still be reasoned with, but as we've already seen, it doesn't hold an idea. He doesn't hold an idea very, very long. Rather than ceasing from pursuing David, he allows the pendulum of his emotions to swing in the other direction and pours out an oath now that we, he will later break. I was just talking with my brother here about oaths in the Old Testament. I think Jephthah's vow. And there's a sense in which people make oaths. It's like we don't need to make oaths. We just listen to what God says. We do what he says. We follow his will. But here, to prove himself, he's going to make an oath didn't need to do that. So Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Saul's mood is like an overzealous, oscillating fan that when turned on is swinging between violent intentions to harm David and violent protestations of his unwillingness to harm David. I'm gonna kill you, David. Oh, welcome to my house. I mean, it's just two extremes. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things, and Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Way back before, that little snapshot, if you remember, where David is in the presence of Saul playing his harp. So as a result of Saul's oath, David moves safely back into the palace. All was back to normal, or so it seems. Now let's just kind of step back and flesh some things out as we've considered what 
what, what Jonathan does here, okay? We must not underestimate the power of a carefully thought out word from the heart when we're in the midst of conflict. Words are powerful things. And just like Jonathan's case, we, we can use words to point out a right perspective rather than focus on a sinful behavior or response to God. Uh, listen to these Proverbs, Proverbs 15, one and two. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pours out folly. Or how about Proverbs 25, 11? A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. These are all carefully thought out words. And one of the ways that God delivers his children is through well thought through, carefully thought out, reasoned words. So there are many times when people uh, have wronged us or are miffed with us that we can look to God for help to guide us with carefully chosen words so we can resolve a conflict and restore relationship. For example, let's just say you have a neighbor that uh, happens to allow his dog to leave presents on your lawn over and over and over again. Now there's a lot of things you could do. You know, you could join the NRA and (laughs) learn how to shoot a gun and you know, um, you could get your own dog and let it run free. Um, Or maybe a cow would be better, right? Just to kind of get back. Or you could set up a time to talk with that neighbor and talk with them with carefully chosen words. Words that are seasoned with grace. Words that deal with the issue at hand. Or this could be a coworker who keeps talking to you from their cubicle when you're supposed to be working which never happens in the, in the context of work, right? People never waste time and that kind of stuff and draw you into things when you should be doing other things, right? So there are times when just using words is a means by which we are able to move from the place of difficulty or even danger um, to the place of reconciliation. So Jonathan comes to the rescue of David with, with words and Saul relents his pursuit of David but not for long. And the reason is because war has broken out. And look, if you would please, at verse eight. And there was a war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines. These stinking Philistines. They just will not go away. I mean, we just see that over and over again. They're always hearing, they're always watching. They're defeated and defeated and defeated, and here they pop up again. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. They're like the cat that always comes back. You've probably heard that poem before. but They're relentless. They never seem to have enough of death and battles. They never seem to be content to live as peaceful neighbors. All they want to do is fight with Israel and Judah. And friends, it's, it's a lot like sin, isn't it? Just when you think that you've mastered it, just when you think you've rooted it out, 
boo, look out. It's always there. And I'm not saying that's what they represent necessarily. I'm just saying there's a similarity here that, you know, what? The, the battle is always going to be there. There's always going to be a need to deal with the enemies of the Lord. There's always going to be a need to deal with the enemy of sin in your life. Here it comes again. It's on the march again, uh, looking to fight another battle because it wants to take you down. Sin is crouching at the door, Genesis 4 tells us. And here, once again, when the Philistines come, David naturally goes out to fight. And what happens when David goes out to fight the Philistines? He's successful in battle. (laughs) Oh, okay, news. Yeah, he's successful in battle. That's exactly what happens. He delivers them a great blow, and as usual, the Philistines flee. So David is successful in battle once again, and he returns to the palace and resumes his role as Saul's musician. But when that happens, when David goes out to battle and he's successful, how does Saul respond? He doesn't like it. Now we jump into verse nine. God's judgment now comes again to Saul. Verse nine, then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Now if that is not a dangerous combination, But just remember, this harmful spirit was not a demon. It was an angel of the Lord sent to bring harm on Saul. It was a judgment on him. So this is God at work through one of his messengers. All right? Because of his continued disobedience, God... Um, would now continue to bring judgment for that disobedience. So there sat Saul under the influence of the harmful spirit with a spear in his hand. And to anyone reading through 1 Samuel, you'll notice how similar this picture is to a previous time when Saul had a spear in his hand and was under the influence of the harmful spirit. This is not looking good for David. And you can anticipate what's gonna happen and you want to yell into the story and say, David, look out! Saul's gonna get you! And just, you know, the, the, the expression here is pretty riveting, isn't it? And David was playing the liar, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. I mean, it's not enough to, to pin David, but he wants to pin him to the wall, all right? I mean, he wants it to go all the way through. So that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So, so David uses his skill to elude the spear of Saul. And he escapes that night. But he knows that Saul will be after him again. And just like David used the skills that he had known from being a shepherd and as a warrior, remember what he was using as a shepherd was the sling, and he used that to bring down Goliath. So now he uses his skill of nimble feet to escape from Saul's raging spear. Now friends, this just helps us a little bit to understand how God sometimes delivers his children from danger. Um, Sometimes God uses our speech as the means of our deliverance. But David now uses his own skill, his God-given skill, as the means of his protection. He's given us all gifts that we ought to be careful to use. Let me just give you a kind of a picture here. You're driving down the road and someone cuts in front of you. You don't just pray. What do you do? 
you pray, and at the same time, you use your skills of driving to make sure that you don't hit that person, right? In other words, God's given you gifts, skills, and abilities to be used, not simply just to say, well, all I'm going to do is pray. And this comes out in the context of maybe someone who's out of work and they're trying to find a job. You say, well, I'm praying that God will give me a job. Well, have you been actually looking for a job? Well, I've applied at things online, okay? Applying at things online, that's a difficult way to go about it because you're just a, not even a piece of paper, you're a piece of technology out there, right? But maybe you need to get up and you need to go out and if you, you, you need to support your family, you need to find some way to bring some income in. It means you have to actually go knocking on some doors and putting yourself out there. That might be awkward for you, but there's a need to do that kind of stuff. You don't just say, well, I'm just gonna pray about it. God's given you skills, he's given you abilities. And sometimes when we're in a place of desperation and danger, yes, we can use speech, but we can also use the abilities that God has given us. And that's what David does here. And it was a, it's a small thing, I know, but you know, there, there, there's this nimbleness at his feet. He's able to get away from the spear. This is the third time. This is old hat for David now, right? Oh, here comes Saul again with the spear, you know. Just right by here, you know, just quickly. No, I don't think it was quite like that, but he had some skill to get out of the danger, and he knew what to do. Then we move on to the next one. I'm calling this one danger in his home. Where do you go when you have to elude the king, you probably go to that place that you call home. I mean, that's usually what we consider to be our refuge. But in this context, his home was not his refuge. Look at verse 11. And Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. All right, Saul has a particular agenda right now, doesn't he? It's just ongoing. It's persistent. Saul's not willing to give up on killing him. His madness and sinful pride are driving him to press on and to use whatever means necessary to destroy his son-in-law. The irony, of course, in this story is what we're going to find out, that Saul has already been challenged by his son Jonathan on behalf of David, and now in this scene it will be his daughter Michael, David's wife, who acts against her father. But Michael... David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Now we're not told how she came to that understanding. It's possible she may have seen the messengers that were outside the house. It's also possible that she knew a little bit about her father and his plans and his schemes. But somehow she sensed that her husband's life was in danger. So she had enough sense to know what was going on. And so she, she came up with this plan. She devised a plan to save her husband. Verse 12, so Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. So here Michael, his wife, is used to help him get out from the danger that was coming from Saul. Now to buy David a little bit more time, verse 13, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. This is something out of a movie. This is, I mean, this is what happens when prisoners try to escape from jail, right? Let's make a dummy and put him in the bed on the appearance. So this is something teenagers do, you know, I'm sneaking out of the house, my parents won't know if there's this, you know. Well, there's some things here that, 
there's actually some subtle humor here, and at the same time, there's something intriguing but saddening as we look at this. What we don't see in the ESV translation is that the image that's being talked about here that she's using to put in the bed is actually an idol. So you're asking yourself the question, you know, where did this idol come from? And if it was in the house, why is it in the house? Well, the text doesn't tell us that. But the humorous side is we've now found a good use for full-size idols in the home, right? Add a little goat's head hair, stick him in the bed, all right? It's a dummy. That's what an idol is good for. It's good to be a dummy, there's got to be some subtle humor going on. I think the narrator is just laughing as he's writing this, right? Now, she uses that as kind of a, a ruse to buy David some time. She was trying to make out that David was sick in bed and should not be disturbed. Verse 14, and when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, oh, he's sick. Now, if we were to do the same thing today, we would turn on a uh, a vaporizer, we would have a pitcher of water and a thermometer by the, by the bed on the night table. Uh, we might even be walking around with a surgical mask. You know, David's sick, you know, don't come in. You know, this is quarantined, right? She's buying time. It was a deceptive ploy to get David, or give David time to get away, verse 15. And Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. It's like, all right, he's sick, I don't care. Bring him in the bed too. I mean, it's, just, it's kind of a crazy thing, isn't it? And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of the goat's, uh, goat's hair at his head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? And Michael is willing to act on behalf of her husband whom she loves and against her father. She is willing to deceive her father for the sake of her husband's safety. Now you might get a little uncomfortable with Michael's actions. And if you do, it's understandable. Because you might be saying to yourself, I thought that God doesn't approve of lying and deception. And you would be right in your assessment. One of the things God hates is a lying tongue. Another thing that God is opposed to is deception. And so this text kind of strikes us at a place where we're like, Ooh, I'm not sure about this. But let me just kind of help us think through this a little bit. This text is not the only account of a hero or a heroine using deceptive methods for a higher good. Let me give you a couple of other ones. This is not the only ones in scripture, there's a few of them. But do you remember the Hebrew midwives who chose to embrace the guilt of deception in order to preserve the lives of the newborns? Pharaoh said, kill all the male boys that are two years and younger, right? And they came up with this plan and they, they were able to protect all these children. They were deceptive. So they were willing to put themselves at risk before Pharaoh rather than fulfill his gruesome orders to kill every boy under two years old. Then there's, of course, Rahab who helped protect the spies 
who were scouting out Jericho. Now in each case, including this one, the individuals in question, Michael, midwives, Rahab, they chose a, a higher good, so to speak, to protect God's people. They were standing against evil. They were standing against the enemies of Israel. They were not standing in a court of law where justice was being meted out, being deceptive. They were using their wits to protect those whom God loves, those who were his. Still, it is right for us to pause and to reflect on the puzzling features in these stories. Because God does hate lying and he does hate deception. But it's also important to realize that the lies of the characters are part of their story because that is what they did. Let me just say that again. The lies and the deception of Michael, of Rahab, and the others is part of the story. And, and the text of scripture doesn't necessarily condone them, but it records what they did. And they're not given to us as examples of how and when to be deceptive or to lie. You may have read the book, The Hiding Place. It's a story about Corrie Ten Boom and her family during the Nazi occupation in um, the Netherlands. And um, this is actually an issue that became a struggle for their family because um, Corrie's sister, Nellie, um, believed, or say Nolly is her name, she actually believed that if the Germans came to the door and they were, they were hiding a Jew and they said, do you have any Jews, that she had to be truthful. And she did that one time, they came to the door and said, yes, we have a Jew, and it's a young lady, and they took this, this Jew. And you understand, when they took the Jews uh, in, in the Netherlands, they took them to Amsterdam, then to Germany, never to be seen of again. So there's a lot weighing on this, but there was conflict within the family as to whether or not it was right to be deceptive or to lie in the context of evil that is rooting out these people. And friends, this is not an easy question to answer, is it? But it is a question, nonetheless, that some people have to answer. Corey and her family um, felt that it was appropriate for them to be deceptive. In fact, they even practiced lying when the Nazis would come for the sake of protecting these innocent people from the evil people who simply wanted to put them to death. Now let me ask you a question. Dads, if you had a bunch of, bunch of guys coming to your door, knocking on your door saying, give me your daughter, is she home? What would you do? Oh yeah, she's there. Just go inside, turn to the right, and she's there watching TV. No, you would probably do whatever you can to protect your daughter. You say, well, that's different, that's protection. There's a lot of similarities here going on, okay? I just, I'm sharing this with you to say, you know what? God has given us a responsibility to think through what we do and how we do it. This by no means legitimizes lying and deception, but you might, even, you might say, though, that lying and deception, God, that, that God uses those even as a means of his deliverance. God uses the sinfulness of people as the means of his deliverance of his chosen ones. Now here's Michael, and she provides a way of escape for David by letting him go through the window. Then she goes on 
and she creates this deception to buy him time. Now the point here is this. God took care of David. God delivered David even through that ruse. Now it's important also to say this. That although we may see this in scripture, um, that such extreme ethical dilemmas, as even I mentioned as far as the Tem Boom family, um, those are gonna be very, very rare for American Christians at this point in time. I can't think of a context where you might actually have to do that. So in other words, the point is this. We should not look at these examples in scripture as excuses for our sinful lying and deception. We just need to see them as part of the story. Bigger picture of how God is continuing to deliver and to care for his anointed one. Okay? Next danger. Danger in the camp of the prophets. I'm sorry, I didn't have this up here. Danger in the camp of the prophets. David flees Saul's servants with the help of Michael, his wife, and he knows where he can run to. He knows who he can trust. And where does he go? He goes to find Samuel. And when he finds Samuel, he's thinking, okay, this is great. Here's a person that I've turned to before. Here's a person that, that kind of mentored me, that's, that's at least uh, anointed me and given me counsel and direction. I can certainly trust him and maybe he will help deliver me. So Jonathan was the means by which God delivered David. Michael was a means by which God delivered. Now we're expecting to see Samuel as the means by which God is going to deliver David, but that's not what we see. That's actually the surprise in the text. There are times in, in the story of the Bible when God supernaturally intervenes, and that's what happens here. It's kind of a humorous little passage, isn't it? Here are these messengers from Saul. And don't think of you know, messengers as simply just an envoy going, is, is David here? Is David here? No. We're talking about soldiers pursuing David for the purpose of killing him. And here they go on this journey. And on this journey, what happens? The Spirit of God comes on them and they begin to prophesy. Now, what does all that mean? All right? The idea of prophesy here, the word is used in the context of Samuel prophesy, meaning speaking God's word. It's the same word that describes David's raving, not David's, Samuel's, Saul's raving when the spirit of God, uh, the harmful spirit comes on him. And here, it's used in the context that it seems to be like, uh, like a, a praising of God or some kind of a, a way in which they are, they are giving glory to God, but it's completely out of their control. So one, one set of messengers goes and comes back. Another one goes and the same thing happens to them. Another one goes and the same thing happens to them. And of course, then what happens? Since the messengers failed, Saul responds with the proverbial, if you want something done right, you have to what? You have to do it yourself. So he goes down there and guess what? Saul's prophesying. Now it's interesting also what we find the narrator saying. I mean, this is comical if it weren't so sad. Notice if you would, verse 24, and he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, 
This is quite a picture. The king of Israel pursuing the Lord's anointed now is prophesying, praising God, it seems like, and laying naked at the foot of Samuel. This is utter humiliation. It is a demonstration that the God of Israel is totally and completely in control of the situation. The king that is against God, the king that is pursuing the anointed one, is laying naked at the feet of Samuel. And of course this proverb comes up, which is actually the same proverb that came up when he first prophesied, when he was anointed and he began to meet these prophets and the people in his village were like, this farm boy, what's happened to him? He's like one of the prophets. So this, there's a sense in which this is, there's some, this kind of like a, an answer. Look at what's happening with Saul. This is really unusual. Now it's like, look what happened with Saul. Now he's totally submissive and under the control of God. I say, it's not submissive, but subservient to God. Now, I, I wanted to run through those, those little scenes. We, we emphasize a number of things in there, but there are some significant aspects, some points that we need to recognize here, and I'll, we wanna just kind of take a few moments here to circle back on these. First of all, as it relates to the significance, think about this. God is a God who delivers his children from danger according to his purposes. Now, it's really important to say that God is a God who delivers his children from danger. And you're gonna see that throughout scripture. But it's according to his purposes. So we gotta be careful not to come from a passage like this and say, well, God's just always gonna deliver me. So I, I'm just gonna run into danger. He's gonna deliver me. No, that's presuming on God. But we wanna be mindful that as God allows in his providential plan for his children to be situations, in particular situations where they're standing for their faith, that he is gonna protect his children unless his purposes are different. Now we see in our text here God's power accomplished through each scenario. He is not overcome with the enemy or daunted by what seems to be a threat. He is all powerful and completely in control and that is true for us. We see God's providence, he's working his plan regardless of the opposition. And with us, God will accomplish what he has set out to do. We may wander through difficult times, but that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. We also see his purposes. He is busy raising and teaching David, his chosen king for future services. We also see his presence. In all of these different scenarios, God is there in the background. He's, he's in the context of what's going on. He's fully aware and so it reminds us of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, in particular verse 6, but where it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But this is the part I want to emphasize here. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. This is, this is the package. See, God is at work delivering and protecting his children, and now we can say that was God. So in other words, when I was, when I was going to that church, and I was run off the road, I'm in this ditch and I pop back up again, I can say, yeah, it was my own skill that did that. But I can also say, but it was God. And he was there, and he protected me. Secondly, I want you to notice that God uses 
varied means to deliver his children. He uses varied means to deliver his children. We saw the dangers from Saul, who was wanting to kill him, his messengers, who were, who were his servants to kill him, from a spear that wanted to kill him. But we've seen the means of deliverance as well. A faithful friend using words, personal skill, the dodging and eluding, a loving and protecting wife using her creativity or wisdom in allowing David to escape. We've seen divine intervention. And in the same way, life is full of danger and there'll be various means that God uses to deliver his children. I remember last year when we were in Bolivia and we were in Samaipata. We shared a little bit of the story with you, but if you remember, we were up there teaching, Johnny was there, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the teaching, there's a kind of an auditorium about our size, and it just starts shaking, right? Here we are teaching, and the start, room starts shaking, beginning of an earthquake, right? I mean, it was an earthquake, but it's the beginning of a day of earthquakes. We finally got one out, and we're like, oh, what's gonna happen? We went back inside, and then we had another earthquake, and, and the, I don't think, can't remember if there were alarms that went off, but there were certainly some signals going on through people's phones that were there saying, hey, you know, there's another earthquake gonna hit, and so we waited outside. We eventually finished up that day, went back to the house, and of course, this was all happening during the World Cup. Um, so we're sitting down, waiting for lunch, and there's a little bit of tension, especially with the ladies, um, that were helping us there. We're sitting down, we were watching a soccer game. I believe it was Bolivia, and it was a game that was going to penalties. So we're watching these penalties, right? And all of a sudden, and I'm thinking to myself, God, why now? You know, I mean, <laughs> and it's just like, and one, one of the guys that just popped up right away, he was out of the room, you know, and it's like, I'm not moving until these penalties are over, you know? So, right, but that day, on that day, we had, we had eight earthquakes that hit that area. And we determined, you know, it's probably a good time to get back down to Santa Cruz from the mountains. The problem was the road was blocked. And we, we said, well, we're just going to go and we're going to wait because we got to get through. We want to make sure that we can catch our plane and all that kind of stuff. And so we, we finally got to where the road was blocked. There were all these huge boulders that were there. We had to wait like two hours. Um, we watched the whole thing unfold as they used these machines to cut these things over, and then we finally got through. Now, my point is this. What are the means of deliverance there? There's all sorts of them. I mean, there was a building that God kept standing, all right? There, there was a, a soccer game that put us all in one place, and so maybe we're in a building that was secure. There was a road that needed to be cleaned off, and so we were going down that road, and God used people that were pagans to do what they needed to do in order to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. My point is this, God uses a variety of ways, a variety of means to deliver his children. But we gotta be careful here. We must be careful that the means of our deliverance doesn't eclipse the source of our deliverance. See, all of those means are under the care and control of the source, who's God. So again, we go back to God. Again, we acknowledge him for being the one who is accomplishing those things in our lives. Next one, the means that we expect may not be the means that God provides. We're in our difficult spot, and we've already devised plans saying, God, if you do this, you do this, you do this, then that'd be great. So God, would you please do it? 
right? I mean, so here you are, you're in a situation, you're in a financial bind, and you may be tempted to expect a letter in the mail that contains a check for $1,000 from a long lost friend who was just thinking about you. But instead, God reminds you of some things that you can sell that have become your idols that will make up the difference. My point is, God's way of deliverance may not be what you're thinking about. Or, here's another example. When you're stuck on the side of the freeway with a flat tire, you may be tempted to expect God to send you Steve Bright, Alex Lopes, Lou Poggi, but I show up. And I'm like, All right, I, th- I think I know how to do this. Um, and we kind of you know, work our way through it and it takes a long time and it's scary. See, what, what you think may be God's way of deliverance may not be what he brings. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says no temptation or no trial or no difficulty is overtaking you uh, that is not common to man and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tested or be in a trial beyond your ability but with, with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And actually we love that because it talks about this way of escape. And most of the time when we're in a difficulty where we're saying, God, deliver me. And what, what we mean by that is, you know, somehow intervene and just, just take me out. Or we want a helicopter to come in and to drop the ladder and to, you know, to, to lift us away out of our problem. And that's not how God typically works. How God typically works is he says, my word is a, a lamp into your feet and to a a light into your path. He'll give you now a way out, a way of escape. The the idea is a path out or a means out. And it's one step at a time, one step at a time. And it might turn here and it might turn here. It may not be a direct line. That's often how God works, which is different than what we want or what we think. And then the last principle here is this. It is through God's deliverance that his children are taught and grow. At the end of these four scenes, David can look back and find strength for the danger he must face in the future. Today is a new day, and for, for all of us who've been through trials, those are times where we can look back, or been through difficulties, or been in some kind of despair. Those are all times where God can teach us about himself, about ourselves, about his purposes, about how he provides and how he cares for, him, for us, and, and we can be refreshed to look to a new day with new vigor. And that's, that's what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your, of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So friends, it's important to realize that these times of difficulty... We may not be, you know, be being chased. We know right now, we may not be pursued to be killed. But we come in life through times of difficulty and we need to recognize that God is there and he uses a variety of means to deliver us that are according to his purposes. Now, I want to finish today by reading, reading a psalm um, and it's Psalm 59. And bear with me here just as we close up because Psalm 59 is in direct relationship to David's experience with, um, that took place in his home. In fact, read Psalm 59, just the beginning. It says this, to the choir master according 
uh, to do not destroy Miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, David says, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord of hosts, you, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There, are, there they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for their cursing and lies that they utter consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But now notice this last little section here, packed with wonderful word pictures. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have You have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Lord, help us today to consider these themes, and Lord, your character and your purposes in our lives. Lord, we we are not David. We, 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 We would not consider ourselves to be David, but Lord, Um, You are like David. You are the one that David foreshadows and points to. And we see that you went to a cross and you died in our place. And we're reminded, Lord, that that even you were pursued and people persecuted you. And and your followers then, who we are, are also persecuted because we identify ourselves with you. Lord, help us to see that none of that is happening without your knowledge. None of the difficulties that you allow us to go through, that you purpose for us to endure and face, are out of your care and out of your control. That you are God who delivers your children according to your will. That you are God who who delivers, Lord, through a variety of means. That you are God who is consistent in what you do and we can trust you. Lord, help us to lean on you, to trust you, to hold on to you during times of difficulty and distress. You are our shield. You are our fortress. You are our strength. And we praise you today, Lord. In your name, amen.